Bibles to 1 Chronicles 10. 1 Chronicles 10. As you know, last week we went through the first nine chapters with a whole bunch of names, uh, hard to spell, hard to pronounce, and so we covered it um, last week. And this week uh, we're going to look at verse 10, and it's about the tragic end of Saul and his sons. It's understanding the end. The end result of those that don't follow God, that don't walk with God, and of the wicked. In Psalm 73, we just looked at that a few weeks ago as we're going through the Psalms on Sunday night. In Psalm 73, remember, Asaph's heart was really confused. He was all messed up, spiritually speaking. He was troubled because he saw the wicked prospering. And he was ready to think that he kept a pure heart for nothing. And he kept himself uh, innocent for no reason. But the longer and the deeper he thought about it, he came to the right conclusion. And when he went into the sanctuary and he sat before God, then he understood how their end would be. In other words, when he looked at the matter in the light of divine truth, through the eyes of God. And if anybody should question Saul's continued prosperity and should question where was God when Saul was king? Where was God when this man Saul, whose hands were so full of blood, would be on the throne for so long? Well, Asaph only had to wait and see what happened in the end to know that there really is a God that judges in the earth. So let's begin now in chapter 10 with verses 1 through 10. Now the Philistines fought against Israel, and the men of Israel fled from before the Philistines and fell slain on Mount Gilboa. Then the Philistines followed hard after Saul and his sons. And the Philistines killed Jonathan, Abinadab, and Malchishua, Saul's sons. The battle became fierce against Saul. The archers hit him, and he was wounded by the archers. Then Saul said to his armor-bearer, Draw your sword and thrust me through with it, lest these uncircumcised men come and abuse me. But his armor-bearer would not, for he was greatly afraid. Therefore Saul uh, took a sword and fell on it. And when his armor-bearer saw that Saul was dead, he also fell on his sword and died. So Saul and his three sons died, and all of his house died together. And when all the men of Israel who were in the valley saw that they had fled and that Saul and his sons were dead, they forsook their cities and fled. Then the Philistines came and dwelt in them. So it happened the next day when the Philistines came to strip the slain that they found Saul and his sons fallen on Mount Gilboa. And they stripped him and they took his head and his armor and sent word throughout the land of the Philistines to proclaim the news in the temple of their idols and among the people. Then they put his armor in the temple of their gods and fastened his head in the temple of Dagon. Mount Gilboa was about 1,700 feet in elevation. It was in the eastern part of the plain of Jezreel. And this was Philistine territory from the time they arrived there in about 1200 B.C. There was a fourth son, Ishbosheth. He survived this battle and he became king of Israel five years after Saul died. Now the timeline of chapters 1 through 9 covers Israelite history from creation to the exile in Babylon in 586 B.C. And at this point, the story goes back to the beginning of Israel's kingdom. Israel's kingdom period, picking up at Israel in, in, with Israel's first king, Saul. Chapter 10 starts with Saul's death. And obviously, to learn more about 
Saul's death, you can go back and look at uh, 1 Samuel. But we learn from these first 10 verses that we can't tell whether this life will be one that's to be envied until it's over. The ancients said, call no man happy until he's dead. And the saying was the result of the fact that men who were supposed to be most enviable proved in the end to be those that not many would willingly change places with. And in Saul's glory days, when he was powerful and when he was famous, there must have been a lot of Israelites who wished that what happened to Saul would have happened to them, at least in the beginning. That the kingly destiny had fallen on their tribe and on their family and on themselves. But now, hey, who would want to be Saul? To have lived his up and down life. To have gone through such a sad and guilty changes. And to have his career in such a disastrous dishonor like the one that ended his tarnished life. To be miserably beaten. And to be totally defeated in battle, verse 3 tells us. To be driven to suicide. To avoid avoid being uh, abused in the worst kind of ways like Samson was. The Philistines couldn't just harm Saul personally, but bring shame on the nation that had him as their leader. Saul was driven to take an extreme course of action. Suicide was something that rarely happened among the Hebrews in Old Testament times. Verse 6 says, all his house died. Now this was written, this statement was written in expectation of Ishbosheth also dying, the last of Saul's sons. With Ishbosheth's death, then Saul's dynasty would have come to an end. Now to know before he died that his house, that his family was dying with him, and to be dishonored by the enemy after he died, to have his body taken and exposed in the temple of an idol, you know, he would have never, you know, known that, expected that. Dagon was worshipped by the Philistines and other peoples in Syria and northwest Mesopotamia. A hundred years earlier, the Philistines had placed the captured Ark of the Covenant in the temple of Dagon at Ashdod. And later, Samson stood between the central pillars of a temple of Dagon, where he was mocked by the Philistines and, that, that were gathered there, you know, watching this, this spectacle. It seems that the Philistines celebrated their military, their military victory by bringing a trophy, that is Samson, of their success back to the temple where it could be displayed as a tribute to the power of their God. All of this was the last and greatest act of humiliation and disaster for Samson. Never envy those whose life on the outside looks enviable. Because you see, you have no idea what miseries are going on inside. What madness and what unhappiness there is in what seems like a peaceful house. What jealousy or unquenchable hatred or or, or unappeasable regret lies down with them every night when he goes to bed and gets up with it in the morning? Who can tell whether or not their life will end up like Saul's? All of his cheerfulness, all the quality of life that he experienced before will be totally tarnished in the end. And that all men would agree in saying, what a miserable man he was. Now, Saul wasn't an atheist. He was a religious man. But you see, in his own way. In other words, with Saul, it was not your will be done, but my will be done. And we see it here. In verse 4, he calls the Philistines these uncircumcised men 
as if he was better than they were. You see, circumcision set him and the Philistines apart. And he was obviously proud of that. You could say in a way that he felt above everybody else so that he could look down on everybody else and cry out, hey guys, step aside because I'm holier than you. So you see, he had a form of godliness, but where was the power? Did Saul show any signs of what circumcision stood for? No, none at all. He rested in the law. But you see, the meaning of that law wasn't demonstrated in his life either. And there's a lot of Saul's in churches today. In other words, they're proud and they feel a sense of sincerity. And they take comfort in saying, you know what, I've been baptized. But do they show the true meaning of baptism in their life? Are they dead and buried with Christ? Are they risen with Christ? And are they walking in the newness of life with Christ? Are they alive to God and really dead to sin? Where's the crucifixion of them to the world and the world to them? Which is what baptism signifies. The sad thing is, they don't have any of it. A.W. Tozer said, A whole generation of Christians has come up believing that it's possible to accept Christ without forsaking the world. And they might look down on those who aren't baptized, like Saul did on the uncircumcised men. But it would have been better, or I should have said, it, it would have been just as good for him as well as for the others if they never had been circumcised because it it did nothing for them. Secondly, we learn from these verses that one man's sin can cause many men to suffer. Because Saul had sinned, verse 1 says, the men of Israel fled and they fell slain. You see, because their flawed king had fallen, verse 7 says, the men of Israel forsook their cities and the Philistines came in and dwelt in them. Sinful rulers have been the cause of heavy punishment on suffering nations. You can look around a lot of the third world countries where their rulers are, are, it's all about them and they have corrupt votes and, you know, they want to stay in power and they'll do whatever it takes and the people suffer for it. But again, it's not the kings only that cause men's hearts pain and fill their lives with trouble and suffering. How many thousands of homes are homes tonight that are full of sorrow? There's no joy in them. There's a lot of hurt and disappointment. There's cruel suffering. There's no light of joy at the end of the tunnel because one person in that family has forsaken God. The third thing that we learn from these verses that outward prosperity isn't a good way to measure a person's character. Jonathan, Saul's son, died on the same battlefield with Saul. Jonathan was Saul's brave and and generous son. And he died with his jealous and murderous father. And Jesus said, do not judge according to appearance, but judge with righteous judgment. You see, God looks at the heart. He looks inside of the man. He says what that man is on the inside. The fourth thing that we learn from these verses, that men sometimes silently confess their own foolishness. Notice verse 9, it says, they sent to proclaim the news to their idols. They sent and they went to tell this news of their victory over Saul to their idols. They went to tell their idols, hey, we got the victory over Saul. In doing this, they show how foolish their own idolatry was. Dagon, the most important god of the Philistines, was believed to bring rain and produce rich harvests. And the Philistines built temples to him when they settled in the land of Canaan where they produced grain. 
Now, when there was a drought, the people would go to the temple and they'd beg Dagon for pity. They would even go as far as sacrificing their children in these temples. And when things were plentiful, then the temples were used for warped forms of entertainment like the humiliation of captives. But Dagon, like other gods, had no power against the one true living God, Jehovah. Look at verses 11 through 14. And when all Jabesh Gilead heard all that the Philistines had done to Saul, all the valiant men arose and took the body of Saul and the bodies of his sons, and they brought them to Jabesh and buried their bones under the tamarisk tree at Jabesh and fasted seven days. So Saul died for his, notice, Saul died for his unfaithfulness, which he had committed against the Lord because he did not keep the word of the Lord. And also because he consulted a medium for guidance. But he did not inquire of the Lord. Therefore, he, the Lord, killed him and turned the kingdom over to David, the son of Jesse. Here we have the lesson of misfortune. Both have good and bad lessons. And we may learn from this. Number one, that our worst disasters bring out the best feelings of our friends. We read here, when all Jabesh Gilead uh, heard what the Philistines had done to Saul in verses 11 through 12, people came out to him. These heroic warriors who brought back and buried the body of King Saul and his sons, that should encourage us to respect our, our God-given leaders. For example, David showed great respect for Saul's position. Even when Saul was chasing him down, wanting to kill him. David never considered Saul his enemies. His enemy. And David left it up to God to deal with Saul. Because Saul was God's anointed. God's appointed. Or they were chosen by, by men, but God allowed it. And David respected that. David showed great respect for Saul's position. It is so easy to be critical. Period. But it's really easy to be critical of those in authority who are over us. Focusing only on their weaknesses. Now, we should never excuse sin. But we should respect the positions of those in authority, whether it's at work, at church, or in government. Scripture tells us that. 1 Thessalonians 5, 12-13 gives us instructions for honoring church leaders. Romans 13:1 gives us instructions for relating to government leaders. Saul, in his earlier and better days, had risen to a high position of an honorable opportunity, and he delivered this city from a coming doom by a, a, a great, vigorous, and courageous act. And when the last disaster happened to their deliverer, and the worst humiliation was done to his body, we see that the men of Jacob, I'm sorry, the men, the, the men of Jabesh-Gilead, remembered what they owed Saul. And that stirred up their thanks. It stirred up their courage. And they rescued him. That is, his dishonored remains from the hands of the cruel enemy. And it was done very well. You see, their best behavior was brought out by this horrible tragedy of their friend, King Saul. And then they displayed, again, their love for him. And, and again, you know, when, when something happens to us, man, how many times have our friends come out and they've displayed their love for us? It's one of those things that helps us to ease our, memory, our, our misery. That the kindest and most generous feelings are then displayed toward us by those who love us. 
sickness, loss, disappointment, grief, the bigger and deeper sorrows of life stirs up the most tender and most gracious Christ-likeness in the human heart. And we really don't know how much and how deeply our family and friends love us until some sorrowful experience brings out all of that inner compassion and, and their thoughts that's in their hearts. Good things and bad things. Things more than we normally think <clears throat> exist in us. When that time comes, they come to the surface and they show themselves for everybody to see. The crushing blow that knocks us to the ground is one of those times. The hum, the, the, then human love comes, comes to the surface. It comes forward to give us the truest and best ministry to help us to get back up. Second, we learn here that unfaithfulness will certainly be repaid by punishment in due time. Verse 13 tells us Saul died for his unfaithfulness. Saul's untimely death was the result of disobeying God's word. We're we're treading on thin ice, man, when we disobey God's word. He had disobeyed God by not waiting earlier. He had disobeyed God by not waiting for Samuel to perform a sacrifice. He also disobeyed God's word when he didn't wipe out the Amalekites completely. He also disobeyed God's when he consulted a medium before going into battle. I mean, Saul had asked for Samuel's advice through the witch of Endor. Now, you know, Saul had done all these things. And, and, and again, as I said earlier, where was God when all of this was going on? Why didn't he do something then? And many times we think that, that justice comes too late. It may have seemed to Saul... That, you see, if he, if he got away with his obe- disobedience and, and, and escaped God's judgment, he said, well, you know, God hasn't done anything. A lot of times we think the same thing. God hasn't done anything. He must not care. He's not watching or, or you, know, it, you know, it doesn't matter to him. Saul may have thought, hey, I got away with my disobedience. I've escaped God's judgment. Days and months and years passed by. And the judgment didn't come upon Saul. And maybe he thought in his heart, you know, I made it. I'm safe now. God's wrath would have come by now, he's thinking. You know, if it was coming at all. He says, I'm safe and I'm sound. And sometimes, and when we think like that, when God doesn't bring judgment right away, we think, well, you know what? I just continue on the same course. Ecclesiastes 8.11, Solomon said, when a crime is not punished quickly, people feel it's safe to do wrong. But you see, if that's what Saul was thinking, boy, was he sadly mistaken. Because you see, his punishment was on the way. It may have been slow in coming, but it was surely coming. And it's going to hit hard. And the days of his life and his power were numbered. Solomon, uh, the psalmist said in Psalm 75 too, God speaking, when I choose the proper time, he says, I will judge uprightly. There is an appointed time by God. We also see that Saul's unfaithfulness was seen in two ways. Number one, verse 13 says, he did not keep the word of the Lord. And secondly, his departure from God. They go hand in hand. When you disobey the Lord and you're you're not obeying the scriptures, pretty soon you're going to depart from him. We read in verse 13 through 14, he did not inquire of the Lord, but he consulted a medium, demonic forces. For guidance. 
Instead of going to God through his prophet Samuel, like he had done before, he chose the forbidden and dangerous use of sorcery. Forsaking the Lord and putting his trust in a miserable and deceiving imposter, a lying spirited demon. His punishment, like his sin, was also twofold. In verse 14, first it says his own death was part of the punishment, and it says the Lord killed him. Those are pretty heavy words. That's a pretty heavy statement. The Lord killed him. The words can even be shocking because of its bluntness. It's like, God, didn't you want to try to, you know, make it a little, sound a little better that, you know. No, God said, I, I killed him. In the, final, in the final examination of things, Saul's death was not by his own hand, but by the hand of God. So those might say, well, if that's the case, why does it say the Lord killed him when Saul took his own life? Well, God had rejected Saul because of his stubbornness and his rebellion, and God judged him for his sins. God, in his sovereignty, in his providence, arranged the defeat in battle so that Saul would die and his kingdom would be taken from his family. Now, if Saul hadn't taken his own life, you know what? The Philistine soldiers would have killed him. But Saul's obedience, disobedience, Saul's disobedience was both in what he did and what he didn't do. Sins of omission and sins of commission. Saul not only did wrong, but you know what? He failed to do what was right. Saul actively disobeyed by attempting murder. Ignoring God's instructions and seeking guidance from a witch. He passively disobeyed God by neglecting to ask God for guidance as he ran the kingdom. Obedience is also both passive and active. When God tells us not to do something, we don't do it. When he tells us to do something, we do it. It's not enough that we just avoid doing wrong. We also need to do what is right. In 1 Samuel chapter 28, Saul asked the Lord for guidance, but he didn't get an answer. Now in 1 Samuel 28, it says he inquired of the Lord. Now, that makes it sound like a contradiction. And people love to use these kind of things and say, well, see, that's why I don't believe in the Bible. There's contradictions. Here in, in, in 1 Chronicles 10, it says he didn't inquire of the Lord. In 1 Samuel 28, it says he inquired of the Lord. So what's the answer? Well, the answer is in understanding Saul's motives. You see, Saul only went to God when he was desperate. Saul only went to God when he had tried everything else, when everything that he tried, everything his own way, didn't work out. And I remember those days before I was saved. I, you know, if I, I, man, when I was at my wit's end, that's when I go, okay, Lord, hey, get me out of this one. Instead of Saul seeking God first, instead of God being a priority to Saul, it was a last resort. Saul never went to God unless there was nowhere else he could turn. So when he finally did ask God, God said, hey, I'm, I'm done. God refused to answer. You see, Saul wanted God only when it suited him. And God rejected him for his constant stubbornness and rebellion. You see, God in our life will not be one of many gods, nor will he be the best of several. He's the only true living God. There is none beside him. 
the Lord let Saul follow a path that led to his death. It was a stroke of divine judgment. Somebody said, be careful. If you don't change your direction, you might end up where you're headed. The second thing we learn from these verses, the overthrow of all his hopes and plans. Verse 14 says, he turned the kingdom, God turned the kingdom over to David. And these words confirm Saul, uh, Samuel's earlier word to Saul. You see, our transgression and our penalty often takes two forms. These two forms. First comes disobedience and departure. We don't do the things that God commands. And neglecting above all things His will concerning us. And then we depart from His side. We depart from His service. And we seek our own well-being in other sources of joy. Things that, that really don't bring joy. It's temporal joy. Secondly, then comes death and defeat. Disobedience and departure. We walk away. We, we leave his side. We leave his service. Then comes death and defeat. Secondly, our soul dies. You know, it, the, the better feelings of the soul, they die. The, the, the truer thoughts, they turn into false thoughts. The better, the better hopes that we have, they die down. The wisdom that we have, it begins to disappear. And then the darkness of spiritual death begins to fall upon us. It begins to take over us. And then with our own destruction comes the ruin of our plans and our expectations. The kingdom was turned over to David. The wood and the hay and the stubble in our lives, all of that false stuff is burned in the fires of God's judgment. Our life's work crumbles and it's lost. The house that we took so long to build now lies in ruin. And then Saul's part in all of this, Saul's part in bringing about his end contributed to the end result by acting, he acted in such a way that his death was due to his foolishness. And secondly, taking usually those steps that led to the final tragedy. Saul put into play the physical causes that immediately affected his, his, his death. Saul wouldn't have died at the time and in the way he did if he hadn't been personally responsible in the above three mentioned ways. God's divine part in determining the matter. Saul had his part. God had his part. And God's part was in, divine, was in accordance with his divine will. You see, God desires that righteousness should be completely justified. Sin comes with its penalties just like integrity comes with its reward by the events that happen on earth. Saul's death was desirable from the standpoint of God, the supreme judge. You see, God let it happen. God saw no reasons to step in so that it shouldn't be the last uh, connection in all of the chain of circumstances that he was forming. And God so ordered the events that this should be the end result of Saul. Just as God arranged all affairs of men's lives up to this point, he also arranged for this event to take place as well in Saul's life. And in some way it was due positively to the outworking of God's divine hand, his providence. And in regard to the great subject of divine and human activity working together as they do, 
they do to produce one result. We come to the conclusion, number one, that God might work out His designs by direct choice, but does use human instruments. Secondly, that what seems to us at the time to be totally due to our part may be the accomplishment of His purpose. God's will. That is, His permitting, His controlling, and His directing hand may be found to be a lot closer in all of it than we think. And His hand to have had a much bigger part in the matter than we think. And then third, that if the hand of God is in events like this, think of it, we can be sure that it's present in things of other and higher orders. If it could be said concerning a suicide, the Lord killed him, how much more can it be said about desirable and admirable and useful accomplishments that God brings about? Amos 3.6 said, If the evil that happens to the city comes from him. If the evil that comes to the city, it comes from him. How much more can we say that he who builds all things is God? So, let the wicked and the unrepentant beware. Because the all-seeing eye of the holy, just God is on them. He sees them. He sees their lives. All that they do, where they do it, why they do it. He sees their motives. And His avenging hand may show itself at any time upon their life. And secondly, let the righteous take heart and hope. Because you see, God is with them. And He's working for them and in them and through them. And God will sanctify and use their works to accomplish His own gracious end. And that is to establish His holy kingdom. In closing, the part of the book of Chronicles referring more particularly to the genealogy of Israel ends in chapter 9, verse 34. But verse 35 of chapter 9 begins the real history of the people. You see, the history of a nation is the history of its head or king. And we start that history with the history of Saul and David. And they both appear on the scene in the following verses. And we can't forget in reading the history that these two men, these two men are representative characters. They're very typical. In Saul, we mustn't neglect to see the head of the great world power or that which is hostile to the kingdom of the Son of God. And in David, we must see one greater than David, the true David, the Lord Jesus Christ. Saul and David from the very beginning to the very end are in opposition to one another. But you see, Saul's history comes first. Saul is the people's choice. He's the man of the world. And his whole life, his whole path is hostility against David. Hatred, opposition, and bitter persecution were the results of his hostility. The end of the world power, as represented in Saul, is defeat and failure, ruin and death. That's the way this world's going to. That's the way this world's rule is going to end as well. But all of this opposition and hostility, think of it, was very necessary for David and his few faithful followers, because you see, it disciplined and it trained David to be the king. 
It trained him for the kingdom of God that God anointed him for. So you see, this world's disorder and hostility are very necessary for you and I. David and his followers under Saul were strangers and pilgrims in reality. And so are Christ and his people right now. But you see, their time is near. It's coming when our sorrow, man, it's going to end. It's going to be exchanged for the success of victory. As we've been looking at in Revelation. Remember, Saul's history comes first. That's the way it always is. Whether it's the history of individuals or nations. Whether it's in nature or in grace. Everything dark comes first so that the light of the picture of grace can be seen. And here in chapter 10, we see man at his best because he doesn't know God. Man at his best is is terrible. That's the dark background. But chapter 11 of 1 Chronicles next week starts with David, the man of God, the man after God's own heart who is the type of a greater than David. And this keeps on unfolding chapter after chapter. It hasn't ended yet. Because you see, in the history of David's son, the Lord Jesus Christ, it's still going on. But it is about to come to a close. The chapters are still revealing him. And will reveal him all through eternity. Because you see, he's the everlasting God. The I am that I am, which is and which was and which is to come, the Almighty. Father, we thank you for your word, Lord. We thank you for your grace and mercies in our life. Father, we thank you for our salvation. We thank you for all that you are to us, Lord. And Father, may we just surrender all to you, Lord. May we hold back nothing from you, Father. Lord, may we come to you with our hands open. Holding nothing, Lord, so that you can pour your blessings into our hands, God. We have nothing that you need. You have everything that we need, Father. And Lord, may we Open our hearts to you, Lord, our minds. Lord, may we receive all that the Spirit has for us. And maybe you're here tonight, but you don't know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. Maybe, like Saul, you've just been doing your own thing. You have a form of religion, but you don't have the power. You don't have the true and living God. And you're trying to do your best on your own. But Jesus said, apart from me, you can do nothing. Nothing that's lasting. Nothing that's of worth. The worship team is going to lead us in a time of worship. And if you want to receive Christ as your Lord and Savior... You want your sins forgiven. You want to make it right with God. Then as we worship, 
You get up out of your seat. You make your way down the aisles towards the steps up front. And I'll meet you there. And when the song's over, we'll say together a simple prayer of faith. Mm -hmm.